This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Thanks. Uh, This is God's word. Indeed. Please be seated. I remember the first time, it wasn't that long ago, uh, I was in an airport in Texas and I saw a shirt that said, keep Austin weird. And I had never seen that before. I asked my wife about it. She said, oh yeah, I've heard of that. I wasn't in Austin. I've never been to Austin, but I saw that and I thought apparently it's a thing, keep Austin weird. And it hasn't been around that long. Uh, according to my understanding and recollection, sometime around the year 2000, there was a man uh, with the, the Small Business Association in Austin came up with this saying, uh, keep Austin weird. And it just started on a couple of bumper stickers. But the idea was that it would be a campaign to produce more local uh, business transactions, right? To invite people uh, to think about local businesses. And it was to keep Austin weird and you know, we're unique and we want to support one another in this community. Now, the interesting thing is, is it's become very commercialized, big time. Um, in fact, other cities have picked up on it. Indianapolis, I'm from Indiana, uh, has picked up on it and it says, keep Indy Indy. Um, and there are three or four other states, I can't remember right now, that actually say keep blank, our cities say keep blank weird. And they just exchange Austin out of it. Now, you wonder how that would happen. They, there actually was a lawsuit, and they fought about it, and the man who created the Keep Austin Weird uh, slogan lost. And so the irony is that his desire was to draw people to local businesses, and in fact, it was taken up and big-time commercialized and turned into this huge commodity, and the slogan now is everywhere. And it's interesting, the, the irony there. Well, I think that... Uh, Christmas is sort of the same thing. I mean, Christmas is what keeps Christianity weird. I mean, think about it. When you talk about the incarnation, there's no other claim like it. It's unique. That the infinite God would become finite, fragile flesh. That God would become a man. But yet, guess what happened? It became crazy commercialized and there wasn't even a lawsuit. And what we see is that this, this strangeness has been marginalized and it's been sentimentalized and it's been domesticated into something almost completely different when we think of Christmas. But yet the incarnation is strange. The incarnation is unique. And when I say incarnation, The basic picture is in verse 14. 
and the word became flesh. And when we read this, what we're saying, what the text is saying is God became man. Now, scholars will point out, as I have, that the incarnation stands alone in the history of religion. This idea of the infinite God taking on flesh becomes an infant to almost a peasant family, right? It's truly striking. It's unique. And it's only truly possible if there is a trinity or a triune God. So now we're stacking strange upon strange, right? Uniqueness upon uniqueness. And oftentimes it makes sense to me why we would uh, want to feel the need to commercialize or to uh, shrink these great lofty doctrines. And it's because, think of the Trinity, for example. We have this idea in Western culture of what monotheism is or what one God would be. And we have that idea. And then we learn that the Bible teaches that God is triune, three persons one God, and we try to take that and fit it into our understanding of what one God is, as opposed to coming to the Bible and letting the Bible teach us that one God is actually one God in three persons, and that's what monotheism is, instead of taking Trinity and trying to fit it into this Western con- construct, right? So in incarnation, we, we do the same thing, and the church for years, for generations, had to work hard to clarify what we mean particularly what the Bible means to say when it says that God became man. St. Athanasius uh, wrote a famous book called On the Incarnation, and he tries to do a couple of main things, and one of the first goals he sets out for himself is to describe and explain why it is that God had to become man. And many theologians uh, took their rep at that in their context of trying to help us all understand that God must become man. And uh, sort of paraphrasing, sort of quoting Athanasius, he says, a creature can't save a creature any more than a creature can create a creature. So in other words, we sinned as creatures, but we need the God, the creator, to save us. But then he also says, only a human can pay the price of humanity's sin. So you bring these two things together. To be candid, the church has struggled a lot frankly, with the idea of Jesus being a human. I mean, there, there are, uh, I've, I learned about more heresies in seminary related to Christ than any other thing. Christological heresies, one of the most famous would be docetism, this idea that, okay, well, Jesus just appeared to be human. He wasn't actually human. We're sort of embarrassed of this idea. In fact, I think people in the church have struggled less, Christians have struggled less with the idea of Jesus being God or Jesus being divine somehow, they struggle less with that than the fact that he actually was fully human. And even our Christmas carols do this to us. Even our Christmas carols show the confusion. So uh, away in a manger, this line, away in a manger, this is what it says, away in a manger, no crying he made. I have an infant. And she cries a lot, and that's okay, right? But, but somehow, we're embarrassed to think of Jesus crying. But I would say, if we want to embrace good theology, it might, instead of saying, away in a manger, no crying he made, in my experience, it would say, away in a manger, blow out diaper he made, <laughs> is what it would actually say. 
right? That is an infant. That is humanity. And if you say, why did Jesus come? Especially in this, in, in this season, people would say, well, just like the scriptures say, to save his people from their sin, to be a savior. And I would say, absolutely. However, what does that mean? And what would that actually look like to save his people from their sin? I think oftentimes it means in the church to be saved from being human. Instead of, what the Bible teaches us is that Jesus came to save us and restore us to being human, to restore us to our created purpose, which is to image God as human beings, as image bearers. So God is saving us, not from our humanity, but from our sinfulness. And when he saves us from our sinfulness, what's left is our robust image-bearing humanity. That's what Jesus came to do. And over the next four weeks, starting this morning, if you were with us a few weeks ago, what we did was we went through the four chapters of the story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you weren't with us, they're online. If you're curious, you can go back and listen. And we're basically gonna do a similar thing through Advent, but what we're gonna do is we're gonna do it from the uh, perspective of the incarnation. How does the incarnation, what does the incarnation teach us about each one of these chapters? All right, and so this morning, we're gonna talk about the incarnation as it relates to our humanness, why human beings were created and what Jesus shows us. Jesus truly is a window for us to see who God is. He is that. Philip, one of his disciples says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, you've been with me this long. Do you not know that if you see me, you have seen the Father? Jesus is God. And so he's a window for us to see who God is. He is, as we said earlier, God's most explicit, robust self-revelation. Jesus is also a mirror to show us what true humanity looks like, what it looks like to be a creature, particularly a human creature made in the image of God. And this morning, that's what we're gonna look at. And we're gonna see uh, that Jesus shows us uh, the goodness of humanness, he shows us the, uh, what else does he show us? The goodness of humanness. He shows us the goal of humanness and he shows us the glory of humanness, okay? So first, the goodness of humanness, humanness, okay? Now, the incarnation is a tremendous affirmation of humanness as we see it. Physical wholeness, right? Jesus became flesh, and what I find interesting is all the things we tend to find problematic about being human, Jesus, with no moral blemishes, perfect, doesn't find them as a problem. For example, Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father, yet he was finite. Could only be at one place at one time, could only speak to one person at a time, needed to sleep and eat in order to function, and none of this was a problem to him. But yet we spend so much of our time trying to be infinite, right? Trying to find where our boundaries are and pushing those boundaries. Rejecting the God-given constraints on us. We see them as wrong. We see them as something to be overcome as opposed to embraced, right? Jesus didn't see a problem with it. In fact, Jesus came to fully embrace and perfectly complete the calling of the first human, of Adam. 
So what, what was Adam's first calling and what did Jesus come to do? Well, he came to serve God with his whole life, to love him, to enjoy him, to reflect his character. And this is in every area of his life, not some special parts of it, right? Not, not just the spiritual parts, right? Every part of his life, every day was to express the relationship he had with the Father. And this is the calling of every human being, to live our entire life in gratitude to the God who created us. That is our calling, to be human. Spirituality involves every part of you, okay? There's nothing about the human life that is not spiritual, nothing. And the reason that that might sound so strange to us is because we tend to think of spiritual as meaning mainly non-physical rather than under the lordship of Christ, of submitting to God's spirit who directs us and guides us and trains us. In fact, the Bible teaches that we can't be fully human unless God's spirit dwells in us. That's how it's, we were made. Okay, so that's how Paul can talk about us having spiritual bodies in the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. This idea that we have physical bodies in the resurrection, just like Jesus, but he calls them spiritual bodies. Why? Because they're in complete submission to God's plan, complete submission to what God has designed us to be, to live our fullness, our emotions, our dreams, our desires, our work, everything submitted to the way that God meant it to be. So the incarnation won't let us only have this materialistic view of humanity, right? Like humanity is only material and we can't talk about spiritual things. This is just what protoplasm does at this temperature, just sort of creates this thing. And that's rampant in our day and age. But what's so interesting to me, and I don't know, it's not only interesting to me, what many people are pointing out is that in this age of materialism, we're all haunted by transcendence. That is, we need something more than materialness. We need to be called to more than simply being material, being a, a, a body with certain chemical reactions happening in our brain and in our physiology to keep us alive, right? We long for more, which we'll talk about more in a little bit, but the incarnation actually brings those together. You see, the church oftentimes tries to make humans less than physical, right? By, by trying to espouse some spirituality that is almost unattainable, right? But actually, the biblical view puts them together. The, the biblical view says... No, actually, you were created to be a human who relates to God as a human being. Jesus, for example, shows us what it looks like to be a perfect human being in God's world. His spirituality was expressed in his whole life, not in a little part. When he prayed, he spoke to the Father in ordinary human language. He went to parties, oftentimes with the life of the party. Why? Because he didn't go to find life in the party. He went with life and showed people how to party as a creature in thankfulness and gratitude to God. He rested, he ate, he laughed, he grew, right? That's why he, he had to struggle to find his calling just like you and I did. And you might think that's crazy. But it's clear in the Bible, what Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. When they're in Jerusalem, the whole family leaves 
and they have to go back and find Jesus. And what's he doing? He's, he's in the temple talking to the scribes. Why? He wants, he's asking questions. He's trying to wrestle with the scriptures. He's growing. He's learning. He felt emotions just like us, but all perfectly and to the Father's delight. And so Jesus shows us that what good humanness looks like. It's not a rejection of the physical, it's an embracing of it properly. Now, excuse me, in my reading and in my conversation with unbelievers particularly, uh, they like that. Like they're they're very intrigued by this, this, this part of Christianity that they haven't heard emphasized before that, okay, wait a minute. So Christianity isn't mainly about this disembodied place that we're going called heaven, but it's about embracing our design as, as humans. So tell me more about that. And we talk about it, but then it gets to the point where you have to talk about the fact that when Jesus came, he had to die to restore our humanity back to us. That, that they're confused by. And the reason is, is they think something like, well, I don't, but you're not that bad. That's what people are telling me. It's like, but why would you think that? Why would you put that guilt on yourself? I mean, I'm not that bad. You're not that bad that somebody would have to die to you. I mean, you just need to embrace the, the potential that's in you. You're not broken. You just gotta find you. These are the types of things we see. And my response is, well, it just depends on the standard, doesn't it? I mean, if I compare my goodness currently to people who are like me, people who value the same things I value, then maybe I'm, I'm not so bad. But if I compare my goodness, my humanness to Jesus, it doesn't go so well for me. And I actually do need a savior. I actually do need someone to restore me to being human. So the incarnation shows you and me that the finished work of Christ recovers the original purpose of humanity. It does not reject it. It restores it. It does not reject it. But it does have and need restoring. All right? And one of the ways it needs restoring is not just to show us the goodness of humanness, but also the goal of humanness. What is the goal of being human? What would you say to that? What's the goal? The catechism way of saying it is, what is the chief end of man? Now you might have an answer. Right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's a great way to say it. The way Jesus says it is to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus showed us exactly how to do that. I mean, you just look at Jesus's life. It's a life in perfect submission to the Father. It's lived out in every area of his life. We see Jesus trusting the Father perfectly in his daily life. He's, he's locked on to this goal. I mean, he's locked on to the Father's will. He's got a goal and he's locked on to it so much so that he's not even wooed by the things that you and I might expect him to be wooed from or uh, towards. For example, in, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus and the disciples had this amazing day of ministry. People were being healed. People were, uh, masses were coming to him. It's a long day, long into the night, and Jesus, early the next morning before anybody else is awake, goes out to pray. He goes out to be with the Father. The disciples don't know where he went. He didn't tell anybody he was going somewhere. And all of these people, more than the day before, showed up. And they want Jesus to be there and to teach them. 
And so Peter says, uh, basically, I'll go find him. And he goes out to find Jesus. And he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, there's a huge crowd waiting for you. Almost rebuking him, like how inconsiderate of you. These people are waiting for you. Are you gonna come back and teach them? And Jesus says, no, go, actually, go get everybody else. We're going on, we're moving on. This, I'm call, I've been called to a specific mission. We're moving on. And I just imagine Peter being floored. I mean, look at these crowds. What else would you want, Jesus? I mean, can you imagine what, how, how prolific this podcast is gonna be? I mean, everybody's gonna wanna listen to this. Come on, there's thousands of people. And Jesus says, no, I know what I'm here to do. I know my mission. But he wasn't just so locked on. He also was so present in the spirit with the Father that as he's moving on, as he is going to glorify God and to love his neighbor, he'll stop, not for the crowds, not going back to the crowds like like I probably would have, but he actually stops for the woman, the marginalized woman who's been bleeding her whole adult life. And he stops for her. And he stops for the blind beggar. And he stops for the children. So Jesus is committed to this mission. He's committed to the goal, the telos, the the direction of what it means to be human, to glorify God in every area of life and to love his neighbor as himself. And And he's drawn to this. He's pulled by it. And yet he's present. And he's open to the leading of God, the Holy Spirit. He's open to Holy Spirit directing him and he, he knows the heart of the Father of what it would mean to glorify God with this woman who's, who's making a scene and crying after him and just wants to touch him and he stops for her. But he doesn't go back for the crowds. Now, of course, he, he preaches to the crowds at times, but that's just my point. My point is, is that because he so is committed to the goal of humanness, he's not wooed away by other lesser things. He's able to be present in these moments, open to the Father's will. Now that's impressive to me because I can't be present for five minutes with my kid. Right? I mean, I, that, that's an area of my life where I'd like to glorify God and love my neighbor as myself. But one of my kids, she's so sweet, but her stories are long <laughs> and really long. And because I am sinful, and selfish, I'm not getting better at listening. I'm getting better at tuning out. And it's just this strange thing to me. And then I'll find that it actually ends up training me to do that with my wife. I mean, this weekend, it was crazy. And, and if you, uh, some of the officers, we asked this question during officer and training, what's your wife most annoyed about? If you were to ask my wife, this would probably be her answer, but I don't wanna speak for her. It's when I ask her a question, like this week it was, I just did the dishes after the Thanksgiving meal and I, where does this go? And as soon as I ask, she starts talking, but I'm thinking about something else. And then she stops talking and I realize I have no idea what she said. Right, I'm not even present. But yet Jesus shows us that humanness, this, the goal of humanness is to glorify God and to love our neighbor as ourselves in every area of our life, even small areas of our life. Jesus has taught me a lot about presence and leadership, whether it's in the church or in conflict, particularly in conflict, or with my family, 
when you watch Jesus, because he finds his value so deeply in the Father, he's able to be completely present in conflict in a way that you and I can't because of our sinfulness, because of our need to be liked, because of our need to save face, because of all the other needs we have. Think about all the conflicts that Jesus is in. How can he glorify God and love his neighbor as himself in a conflict? Well, he doesn't need anything from them. He actually can be for them. One of my favorite uh, sort of quotes or concepts of leadership is that in conflict, I want to be the least anxious person in the room. Jesus was non-anxious, but I can't get there. Non-anxiety means you're probably dead, right? So if you're like, I don't feel anxious at all, just check your pulse. But a leader is the person who's the least anxious in the room. And it doesn't matter what chair they're sitting in. You wanna know who the leader is in the room, it's the person who's the least anxious. And how's that possible? Well, it's possible when you understand the goal of humanness, which is to glorify God, to submit to his will, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in conflict, it's the perfect opportunity to love your neighbor, ask questions, lean in, and know that your, that feeling of vulnerability, you're not gonna find fullness by their approval in conflict. You're gonna find it by the Father's love for you. So you see, the implications of embracing the goal of humanness to glorify God in all areas of our life and to love our neighbor as ourself, the implications are great. So I would ask you, what is the goal for your life? What is your goal for your life? We're entering into a season where uh, it's natural for us to reflect on the year before and to reflect on the coming year or weeks. And I know it's gonna be busy, but I've always found that this is a season for that to happen. We have Thanksgiving and we're reflecting and then we're gonna go into the new year that may be a lull for some of us between Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And I would say, don't waste it. Now you don't have to wait for it, but how can you plan for it now? That you'll ask yourself this question. What is the goal of my life? What does it mean for me to be a human in 2016 named Damien at New City in Orlando with Leah and Livy and Scarlett and Adeline? What does it mean? What does it look like to glorify God and love my neighbor as myself in my neighborhood on Qualey Street or at Starbucks in College Park? What's the goal of my life? And this is something else I've been thinking on. It's not new to me, but it's come back in a fresh way, and that is this. Although this scenario is impossible, let's just hypothetically imagine that we could prove that Jesus' bones were still in a tomb somewhere in the Middle East. And you know what Paul says, if that's true, then Christianity is worthless. And if you still live it, then you should be pitied more than anyone else. So let's just say that was possible. How much would my life actually change? In other words, have I mistaken moral morality? Have I mistaken values, American values, conservative values, progressive values, whatever it is? Have I mistaken values for the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom? 
And it's easier for me now to do that coming out of the election cycle, but it's not only because of that. But where have you mistaken values, your own personal preferences for the gospel? And how much would your life actually change? How much am I risking? Even if it's a conversation with someone. Giving of my time. Like how would my time change? That is to say the way that I invested my time in people or other things. How would that change if Jesus' bones were found in a tomb somewhere? Would it change at all? Would my spending habits change at all? Well, that's going to tell me what my goal for my life is when I reflect like that. So the incarnation shows us the goodness of humanness. We see it in Jesus. It, it, it puts it on display. It's an affirmation of human life and spirituality. The goal of humanness, then we see, is to glorify God in every area of our life and to love our neighbor as ourselves in such a way that we radically reorient our lives around that end. And lastly, we see the glory of humanness in the incarnation. Now, if you read the gospels, you see how glorious Jesus is. Everyone, everyone was drawn to him. Except the Pharisees, and we'll talk about that more next week. Prostitutes were drawn to him. Children were drawn to him. Strong, uh, anachronistically, blue-collar men were drawn to him. Women were drawn to him. Everyone was drawn to him. Tax collectors invited him to their party. The glory of Jesus was radiant. And we see in Jesus, in his humanity, the capacity that humans are created with to have glory. We have this enormous capacity for glory. We're made to image the immortal God, which means we have to have a lot of capacity for glory. And that's why we long for glory so much. It's because we have this huge capacity for glory. And what what we find in this first chapter of John is that we long for glory because we're made for glory, but there is a difference between us and Jesus. You see, Jesus is full and we are empty. Look at this in, in John chapter one in our text today. The second part of verse 14. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received. You and I are made to receive. The Bible is filled with receiving imagery. We are filled with the Holy Spirit at conversion. We abide in the vine. Why? To receive life. We are not the source of anything. We only receive, and that's okay. That's what we were made for. But we have to see that our glory, this capacity we have for glory, that glory to fill up that capacity is not sourced from within us. 
but it's derivative. It must come from another source. Philippians 2, chapter 3. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and they're having issues in conflict, interpersonal conflict. And he, he pulls from the doctrine of the incarnation to help them understand how they can get through conflict. Go read Philippians 2, it's amazing. All right, but one of the things he tells them, the reason you're having so many issues in conflict is because you're living out of rivalry. And then he uses this word, ESV translates, I think, vain conceit, maybe just conceit. But literally, the word means empty glory. That's what it means. They, they, they are emptied of their glory. They are starved of significance and value. And that's a problem because as image bearers, we have this large capacity for glory, yet in our sinfulness, we are starved of that glory and we have to fill it up. And so we'll go to all types of other sources in order to get glory. Why? Because we can't produce it. And we realize that. We said last week, you don't make your own identity. Your identity is given to you from outside, always. That's true. And so is the glory. You have to go somewhere else to get it. Jesus in John, our gospel, chapter five, says, how can you believe in him when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? John chapter 12, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The problem isn't that they want glory. The problem is, is that they're going to the wrong place to get it. That's the problem. <clears throat> Years ago, 1998, you still get it online, an issue of Fast Company. Uh, this woman, uh, it's a magazine. This woman named Harriet Rubin writes an article called Success Excess. And, I, and this uh, is quoted in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. And you can still get it online. I pulled it up this week uh, for free. And uh, here's a quote from this article. Again, the title is called Success Excess. She says, we believe that success and its cousin money will make us secure, important, and happy. But it's time to tell the truth about the high numbers of people who have used all their means to get, to achieve money, power, and glory. That's her word. Money, power, and glory. And then self-destructing. The whole project of redemption of human beings is to restore us to the glory of our image-bearing capacity. The problem with you is not that you're human. The problem is that you're sinful. Sin is the problem. Jesus actually came to remove sin and restore humanity. We see that in the incarnation. Now, two amazing rare things happened in the last couple of months. The first thing is the Cubs won the World Series. The second thing is one of the largest supermoons, which is not nearly as rare as the Cubs winning the World Series, I understand. But there was a supermoon, right? People took pictures of it. I'm sure you saw pictures of it. It was amazing, huge, super. That's why it's called the supermoon. And when is the moon... Most like the moon. When it's most fully reflecting the glory of the sun. You see, the moon's glory, even the supermoon, this amazing capacity, we hadn't seen the moon like that in however many years, generation. 
the moon is most moonish when it is fully reflecting as much as it can the glory of the sun. Because see, even the moon's glory is derivative. It's meant to reflect the power of the sun. And you and I are like that. When are we most human? We're most human when we are most reflecting the glory of the triune God. That's when we're most human. So as we watch for the light over the next four weeks, if we seek glory or watch for the wrong types of light, we will shrink our humanity. But when we turn ourselves to the true light revealed in Jesus Christ, then, then we will grow increasingly in our reflecting capacity. We will continually be restored to the image of God. Let's pray together. Father, we certainly go to all sorts of places to make us feel glorious, to make us feel secure. And you've created us gloriously. You said we were very good. You said there's nothing else in creation, not even the Grand Canyon that's like human beings who are made in your image. But yet, in our sinfulness, we, we try to short circuit true humanity and try to find glory in all of the wrong places. And I pray now during the season and even in this time of response and before we go to the Lord's table that we would come to you longing to reflect your glory, to receive from your fullness so that we too would be filled up. In your fullness, Lord Jesus, we receive from you.